Welcome to Gospel Mission Church's message podcast. We pray that as you listen, you will be encouraged in your journey and that your relationship with Father God will be strengthened and deepened. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, my name is Derek Lehman, and for me, it's a special occasion today. If it's not a special occasion for you, that's okay. Um, but it's my first time preaching here since becoming pastoral care pastor in October. And so I've been kind of looking forward to this date with a bit of nervousness and uh, God's leading as well. Um, to commemorate this special day for me, I went out and got my first haircut in 20 years. Well, not. <laughs> I paid for my first haircut in 20 years. Um, yes, because it was such a special occasion and that tells you, well, yeah, I'm introducing myself about, by bragging about how, how cheap I am. Anyways. Um, <laughs> My main text this morning is in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. It says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I can ask you just to kind of humor me for a moment this morning and just play along. Just pretend... We're at a coffee shop, you and I, one-to-one. We're at a coffee shop, small table, and we're just talking, and I ask you to, um, can you explain this passage of scripture to me? What does this mean? And you think about it, and, and you're like, well, he died for everybody. Like, that's pretty much the gist of it, isn't it? And that's obviously a very good answer. It's accurate, it's to the point. It's concise, it sums it up well. But what if I asked you this question instead? Why did Jesus die for me? Now, you don't know me very well. Um, but why did Jesus die for me? I have a hard time, honestly, um, totally accepting this passage of scripture. I find, a, I find it really hard to read through it because the idea of Jesus dying for me just doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I have a hard time accepting something that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, the idea of him dying for me. And so that's kind of a bit of a tough confession. Why would a pastor preach on a passage of scripture he doesn't totally understand? Um, not a good start. Um, been a Christian for 39 years, and every year I read through my Bible and I get to this passage, and I can't skim over it like I do when I get to parts of Leviticus. Um, I get stopped and I pray, and I'm like, God, help me with this. Uh, I, know it's, I know it's true, I think it's true, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I've been a pastor for 15 years. Um, I've preached on this passage before, of course. I've taught Sunday school, I've been a small group Bible leader, Bible study leader. I've done research, read different translations, um, done all sorts of things, read commentaries. I have just tried to, I even tried to read the original Greek. I don't want, know why I figured that would be of some kind of help. Um, and I just kind of don't get it, don't totally understand it. I have a BA in church ministries um, studies. I have a master's divinity degree. And I remember studying this in Bible college and seminary. And I still don't have a very good answer why Jesus would die for me. Now, him dying for you seems okay. That makes some sense because you see, as I look out, I don't know everybody, but y'all look like good people. You're probably decent people. Jesus wants to die for you. That's his prerogative. That makes some sense to me. That's his decision. That's all good. But for him to die for me, this kind of doesn't, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And that's because when I think back of where I came from and, and before I became a Christian, um, from the ages of 12 to 14, I was no nicer way to say it. I was a, I was a bad kid. Um, I was that kid that liked to break the rules. I was that kid that liked to, um, I liked the challenge of getting away with things. 
Um, I really didn't care about being a good person at all. I actually had a lot of fun in that, pursuing that type of a lifestyle. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I actually grew up in the north end of Portage. That explains a few things maybe. Um, don't hold it against me. Uh, you can't do much about where you came from. You can only, uh, do, you know, can only think about what you're, where you're going, right? That's what you can control. And as a kid, I was just so involved in so many dumb, uh, just things I shouldn't have done. And I think back and it's it just really kind of embarrassing of all the things that I did as a kid. I enjoyed doing as a kid and I actually got away with uh, the majority of them. And I think of them and I even tried to make kind of a bit of a list and it's just all over the place. I was shoplifting, break and enter, vandalism, um, fights, carrying a knife to school, um, just doing all sorts of just crazy things. Disrespect of authority, not listening to my parents, drinking too much, um, experimenting with drugs, causing problems at school, not relating to like opposite gender appropriately. I even dabbled in the occult and Satanism and I was just not a good kid. And scripture says is that your sin, your sin will find you out. Eventually it is exposed. And all of a sudden my mom found out something about me and I was in trouble. And I couldn't think of a way to get out of it. I couldn't think of a way to lie my way out of this one. And of course, when you're a kid and you get in trouble. Um, my mom told me, well, you just wait till this weekend when your dad gets home and then you're in real trouble, which was true. Um, and so I came to this, this, this realization that I really didn't have any more choices in life. I had backed myself into a corner. I couldn't lie my way out. And at that point, I really, looking back, I really believe that a spiritual deception became a part of my life. I kind of lost touch with reality. This imaginary world that I lived in where I could control everyone, control situations, it started to kind of fall apart. And uh, before Christmas, our sermon series was a beautiful mess, and I was a mess. Not, not beautiful, of course, but it was a mess. And I, only found, I found that I came to this conclusion that I only had one option. And so on a Thursday evening, I found myself up on top of the Tupper, the Tupper Street Bridge, and I was standing on the railing, shuffling back and forth, and looking at the railway tracks below and trying to line up with them because that was the only option that I had left in life. There was cars driving by behind me. Nobody stopped, nobody cared. That's what I thought. Um, and, that, and during that time, my mom realizing that I was out of control and she couldn't do much about it, she started to pray for me. And she started to attend this church. And this church had a youth group and a youth pastor, and they didn't know what those things were. And so before that evening, uh, at supper time, this youth pastor phoned me out of the blue and invites me to youth group on Friday night. And I don't know what I said. I just booed to him and hung up on him. And then later on, I find myself up on this bridge, getting ready to jump off of it. And I said two prayers. Um, my first prayer was to Satan, and my second prayer was to God. I knew God was existed, but I didn't think he cared about me, or at least me anyways. And as I was praying, this idea came to me of, what's a youth group? Why, why would I go to a youth group? What, would that, what is that? And so I thought, you know what, I'm, I, I made this deal with God, and dealing with God is, negotiating with him is probably not really a very good thing to do, but I said to him, well, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to go to youth group tomorrow night, on Friday night, and then after that, I'm going to be back up here. So you have one chance to do something in my life. 
and, that, and then that will be it. And so I go to youth group on the next, the next evening on Friday, and I encounter this really weird group of young people. Um, they're so strange to me. And they're really, like, they're really nice kids, and they talk about their faith, and they seem really sincere, and they care about each other, and they're playing and having fun. And I was like, this is kind of weird. Like, this is just, I couldn't get this. And then they had adults that were there who seemed genuinely interested in me, even though I had kind of a bad reputation, right? So I was like, this, is, this has got to be like just the biggest fake thing going on here. Like, what is going on in this place? And so I thought, you know what? The adults can't pull this off. So I'm going to go to church with my mom on Sunday. So I go to church with my mom on Sunday. And I go to this church, and I encounter these people who really like being there. Um... They like being with each other. They care about each other. They're like totally like passionate about worship and, and they're talking about having a relationship with God and praying and God answering prayer and them talking to God and God doing miracles. And I thought this was, this was crazy. And I, had, I was like, okay, I gotta find out if this is actually true. Because these people are really, they're doing a good job of faking me out here because I was just like, this could not be true. And so that's how I ended up going to church. Um, a little while later, my youth pastor, he, uh, he sent me to youth camp. I thought youth camp was like Boy Scouts, and I'd been kicked out of Boy Scouts, so I was kind of thinking, what the heck, I'll go to this and we'll see what happens, and I'll probably end up just getting kicked out of that as well. And last minute, he has an emergency, and he ends up not being able to go. And so I find myself at this camp, and I find myself, of course, getting into trouble. And I remember going, have this meeting, and I'm standing amongst, there's 11 guys, none of them, like they're all strangers. And they're discussing what to do with me. And um, they had phoned my parents to come pick me up, and they weren't going to do that. And they're talking about um, sending me home on the bus COD, and, and they really didn't know what to, what to do with me. And uh, there was this one man who's an older guy, the oldest of them all, and he was wearing like a suit jacket and dress pants at a youth camp. And I thought, very strange, right? And he says... Um, this camp exists for guys like this, and so this boy is going to become, this young man is going to come into my cabin, and I will assume full responsibility for him. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go with this guy. He's crazy. I was like, this is, what is going on with this guy? And so I end up spending the rest of the week with this, this, uh, this youth group from Northern Ontario. Never knew them before that. And kind of stayed out of trouble and ended up kind of enjoying camp. And the last day of camp on Sunday morning, the... Uh, I was sitting at the back, and I had to sit by myself, and I had the, um, a leader on each side of me, and the, the guy that's, that's preaching, he, um, at one point, he starts to talk about, there's somebody here that's contemplating suicide, and these are some of the things you've done in your life, and he starts to talk about what I'm thinking, and then he looks straight at me, and I'm like, well, how can he know this? Like, what is going on in this place? Like, this is so bizarre. And then he said, you know what? You are trying to find truth and you're not going to find it. You can't make it up. It's not a subject to be studied. Truth is a person named Jesus and you have to, you, you have, to have a relationship with him. And I'd like to introduce you to him. And I don't really even know why, other than I guess the Holy Spirit was at work in my life, but I came forward for him to pray for me. And so if this was kind of the chapel, it was at Manhattan Beach Retreat Center at Pelican Lake. And there's a spot that's like right there. That's like my sacred spot. That's where everything changed for me. I went forward and he prayed for me and I experienced the idea, this concept 
this real thing of being born again. And right then, right there, all of a sudden I was a different person. Different value system, different, different way of looking at life, different way of looking at people, caring about people, being respectful, having a regret for the things I had done in my life for the first time, really. And it really, everything just changed for me on that day. Now you can call that whatever, radical conversion, I don't know, but I, I call it being born again. And it's this idea of not just becoming a good person, because I really wasn't interested in becoming a good person, to tell you the truth. But that changed me immediately. When you read through Romans, you get to Romans chapter 7, verse 18, and the Apostle Paul, he says this, he says that I know that nothing good lives in me. And I kind of identify with that, whatever, that um, confession. Because I really didn't think that anything good would live within me. I really didn't think that I had potential. I didn't really think I was ever going to have any, go anywhere with my life. And why did I have one? Like, there's just all these questions. And the Apostle Paul says, he says, there's nothing good that lives within me. So I kind of identify with that. But I also have to confess this morning that I'm also giving you a really bad example of how to read scripture, right? Uh, reading scripture is not a good idea just to pull pieces out here and there. And if you run into a verse you don't understand, you should read the context of it. That'll help you a little bit, right? So if you look at Romans seven eighteen, the entire verse, it says, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Even when I want to do what is right, I find that I can't. And in verse 23, for there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. So what a miserable person I am. But who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and by death? Well, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Each one of us has kind of two natures, right? We are each born with a sinful nature, but we're also born with the image of God. Now, you can deny it, you can hide it, you can ignore it. But the image of God is within you. And that means that no matter what you've done, or what you think of yourself, you are inherently important. You are valuable. You are here for a reason because you have been created in God's image. And for me, this spiritual rebirth reclaimed that image, what God wanted me to become, the good person that God wanted me to be. And now, all of a sudden, I had the power to actually live that out. And I had the desire to live like that. So I've kind of corrected my view a little bit here of Romans 7.18. If you want to go back to Romans chapter 5, provide some context there as well. The first two verses, it says, Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace, peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. In verse 6 again, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Verse 9, and since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through this life, through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. How do we accept this fact that God, our Heavenly Father, sent his son to take on the punishment that we deserved, that we justly deserve for our sins? 
And the key to that isn't that, oh, gee, you have to understand everything. The key to that is you just accept it. It's by faith. It's true. I use this illustration. I'm not sure it's a real good one, but I'll use it anyways. Um, if you ask me, if you ask me why I love my wife, get out a piece of paper and I will give you 100 reasons. If you ask me why she loves me, I have no idea. She just does. And I'm very grateful for that. Now, she demonstrates that she cares for me, so there's, a, there's some proof of that, okay? That's, but I just take her at face value. I take her word. If she says it's true, then it's true. And I don't question it, and I don't have any reason. To, like, I have no reason to question it. And if God says he loves you, then he does. It is a fact. No matter what you think about it, how you feel, no matter what you've gone through in your life, he does. He cares about you. And so that might seem kind of unbelievable, too good to be true. I don't know how you look at that. But Jesus gave his life for us that we would have eternal life. And that eternal life does not start when we pass away. It starts today. It starts when you are born again. In our current series, we've been talking about making room. Um, we've been looking at that prophetically, Isaiah 54. Read verses 2 to 4. It says this. It says, enlarge your house, build an addition. Spread out your home and spare no expense. For, for you will soon be bursting at the seams. Your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle the ruined cities. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there's no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth, the sorrow. When I look at making room in my life, there's two different ways of doing that. One of the ways, of course, is making room for God. And that's part of our Daniel fast for the last three weeks is we've been trying to set aside this time to focus, to concentrate on this relationship with God, having conversation with him. And hopefully that's not just the three, you know, it's the thing we do once a year, right? That's something we want to make a part of our lives and give the, the Holy Spirit opportunity to, to work in, in us and to change us and to make us more like him. But the second aspect of making room is the idea of making room for others, to be an influencer, to, to draw people into your life, to allow people to get to know you, to know your faith. And I warn you that that's not always a fun thing to do. It can be tough. When you think about building... Like in the, in the original, it's talking about a tent because they lived in tents. But in the New Living Translation, it talks about you know, living in a home. When you build something, you, it takes work. It takes planning. It takes resources. It's a lot of effort. And it takes work to make room for other people. Now, it could be very simple. Like it could be like you know, you're in church and the place is full and people come in and can't find a place to sit and you slide over and you make room for them. That's a very literal um, example of that. But maybe God is calling you to make room for somebody that you don't get along with real, real well, um, somebody new, somebody different, someone you don't maybe have a lot in common with. But you look at verse 2, it says, spare no expense. And in verse 4, it says that there's nothing to fear in being obedient to God. Um, two weeks ago, my youth pastor passed away. And... I know where he is. I have no doubts about that. But I'm here today because he made room for me. And I wasn't always nice to him. But he brought me into his family. He treated me like one of his family, one of his kids. He defended me. He stuck up for me. He was there alongside all the things that I did. I remember going to junior high basketball games and being in this, looking into the stands, and he was the only person there. And he cheered for me no matter what. No matter how I was playing or how things were going, 
I knew that he loved me no matter how I pushed his buttons and upset him and did some things to him that I shouldn't have done. But I knew that he loved me. And he had the arduous task of holding me accountable. He made me apologize to people. Not very much fun. But I had to grow up quick because I had done some things that I should not have done. And he took me around and he's like, no, you need to start acting a little bit more mature here and own up to the things that you've done. And so there is also the aspect of accountability. There's sometimes just making room for people can be uncomfortable, can be a little difficult. It can be work. But of course we're called to do that. In our church, we have literally, literally tried to make room for people. We have a room across the hallway called a prayer room, and it is for the purpose of praying for people. We literally want to make sure, we want to make sure this happens for those who, who need prayer. And there's people there, they're volunteers. Um, they may not be able to answer all your questions, but they care about you. They don't even know you, but they care about you, and they want to pray with you. And so if that's you, you know, following the service, um, you may want to slip over there, and whatever your concerns are, somebody will pray for you. And so as a church, we're, we, we want to make room for, for everyone, for people. And since others have made room for me, it just makes sense that I should also make room for others. And since God has made room for each one of us, it just makes sense that we should make room for him to work in our lives. And I ask that you bow for a moment and, and pray with me, and the worship team is going to come and worship again. Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness to us, how you work in our lives, how you transform us. You make us into what we should be. God, I rejoice in the things you've done in my life. A lot of good things. And Lord, there are people here that also have that as a part of their testimony. They'll talk about how good you've been to them and what you've done in their lives. And I pray, God, that they would share that testimony with others. God, we rejoice in your work in our lives and in those around us. And God, I pray your blessing on your people here as they endeavor to live for you. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If there's anything we can do to help you along in your journey, email prayer at gmchurch.ca. If you'd like to see what's coming up at Gospel Mission Church or learn more about us, visit gmchurch.ca.